0: Welcome to the Cato Institute. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Before we begin, let me ask uh, all of you to t- please turn off your cell phones if you have them, since that uh, interferes with our sound system here. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct our Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Economic history is full of uh, examples of successes, of people, of, of innovations and inventions of entire countries. The explanations of economic success are about as varied as, as the examples. Now, development economics, uh, as a subfield of economics, which was born in the post-war period, has gone through a number of fads uh, over the decades and for a long time ignored the lessons of developed countries. Uh, those fads have included an emphasis on infrastructure, on industrialization, on poverty reduction, Uh, a focus on agriculture, state-led development, lending uh, conditioned on market reforms, the so-called Washington Consensus, and so on. Development economics uh, has matured over the years, and I would say that uh, most practitioners now do accept a central role for the market and reject the more naive uh, faith in predatory governments that characterized the field in earlier years. But in Washington, it's difficult to talk about economic development uh, without the discussion quickly devolving into a discussion about foreign aid. And that's a shame because we know that there are a number of things, not uh, foreign aid, which are the real determinants of economic progress. The aid discussion, it seems to me, is a great distraction away from the real determinants of growth. And it is a reflection also of the constructive, the constructivist mentality that I think still uh, holds sway in much of uh, development economics, uh, whereby Washington, the World Bank, or government programs are reflexively called to solve the big problems of underdevelopment. An extreme manifestation of that mentality is the current political campaign to massively increase foreign aid to poor countries, in order to pull them from their so-called poverty traps. Old, discredited ideas are being uh, brought up, uh, ideas that have very little support, actually, among uh, development practitioners, and canvassed in today's political capitals. There is another view, however, uh, one that sees decentralized decision-making in the market and in politics, uh, that, and that views that as a superior path. More and more scholars are discovering the insights of Nobel laureate Friedrich Hayek, one of the 20th century's greatest social thinkers, as they apply to developing countries. Insights on dispersed knowledge, on subjective preferences, on the discovery process, the role of information, and so on, all make the case against planning and in favor of individual liberty and a great deal of humility. That's why I'm very pleased to have with us today uh, Bill Easterly, who is one of the, the country's leading uh, development economists, somebody who has uh, discovered over the past several decades in his career uh, how useful some of Hayek's uh, thinking can be in thinking about economic development. Bill Easterly is a professor of economics at uh, New York University. Uh, And he also works at the Africa House, which is part of uh, New York University. He is the co-director of of New York University's Development Research Institute. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Center for Global Development here in Washington and a visiting fellow currently at the Brookings Institution. He is the author of countless academic articles and uh, several books. One of them is uh, The White Man's Burden. Another one is the elusive quest for growth. Believe it or not, I've known Bill in the early uh, 1990s when he worked at the World Bank. And so it's my pleasure uh, to welcome him on his journey from the World Bank to the F.A. Hayek Auditorium today. Please help (laughs) me welcome Bill Easter.
1: well Good morning uh, I have to confess i 'm a little flustered this in giving this talk because um, I was up late last night reading Hayek trying to to really nail down once and for all what is Hayek's secret to development because I thought Hayek is more than anyone would be the economist who really finally gave us this this answer to the question that we 've been seeking all this time for so many years, for uh, uh, 25 years of my career and for all the time of... It's actually not several decades, Ian. It's just 25 years. Uh, (laughs) uh, And uh, so I was sort of up late last night reading Hayek. Then I woke up early this morning, read some more Hayek. I was kind of combing through Hayek, you know, volume after volume, desperately trying to extract every last ounce of wisdom from Hayek as to what is the secret to economic development. And I finally finally nailed it at about 11.15 uh, this morning. <laughs> and I put it in the presentation, put it in the PowerPoint slides, immediately emailed them to, to uh, Ian, ran out to my car and started uh, speeding towards uh, the Cato Institute to give this talk. In fact, uh, a little too enthusiastically speeding because I was, this is, I'm, what I'm telling you is true. I was actually pulled over for speeding on the way here. <laughs> and uh, the uh, the officer kind of waited in his car for a while, presumably to check out if I was driving a, a stolen vehicle that was registered to Al-Qaeda. And uh, then he came up to my window. He said, you know, why are you going so fast? Uh, you know, I, I could arrest you right here and now. <laughs> And that really shook me up. And I said, Well, you know, I'm sorry, I, I'm kind of rushing because I have to give a talk at the Cato Institute at 12 o'clock. And he said, Oh, OK, go ahead. And he let me go. <laughs> so, um, so, Ian, you now, um, you may not have realized this, but you have, you have friends in the U.S. Park Police that realize the, the central role of the Cato Institute in our society. <laughs> so, Let's go. Let's find out what is Hayek's secret to development. Uh, Well, we badly need a secret uh, because there's been this uh, developing consensus in the new millennium that we don't know how to achieve development or how to achieve economic growth. And, um, you know, normally I'm a very humble guy and don't uh, celebrate my own accomplishments, but I'm kind of proud of the fact that I... uh, that it, back in 2001, I wrote a column for the Financial Times called "The Failure of Development." It actually came out on July 4th, 2001, when I was still employed by the World Bank, and, that, and the World Bank was so uh, so swayed by my arguments at that time that they promoted me to a position outside of the World Bank. <laughs> um, and then uh, since then, uh, many more people have jumped on the bandwagon to say uh, we really don't know how to achieve development. Harberger said uh, that we don't know which policies achieve growth. Uh, there was a big group of famous economists that got together in Barcelona to, uh, to deliberate for several days and then to conclude that they didn't have a clue. Uh, then Danny Roderick, who is always a, you know, a good contrarian and a co-author of Arvins. Uh, it said that you know we just uh, the experience of the last two decades has really frustrated any expectation that we had a head of fix on how to achieve economic growth. Uh, the World Bank is just wrapping up a great a multi million dollar uh, research endeavor called Dispense Commission, whose uh, conclusion is going to be that we don 't know anything, and then we last of all, to uh, achieve the maximum prestige possible, I bring. Together, I, I quote the most venerated figure in all of economics, and someone I venerate very much, uh, Nobel Prize laureate Robert Solow, in which he said, uh, In real life, it's very hard to move the permanent growth rate. And when it happens, uh, it's really totally mysterious how how it did happen. So that's, that's the state in which we are in today, in which we really don't know how to achieve economic growth and development. And how did we get here? Well, um, We've had some traumatic experiences as development economists. Uh, There was this sort of mainstream economic consensus called the Washington Consensus that was going to generate strong growth in Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East in the 80s and 90s, uh, which then, after the fact, became known as the lost decades in Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East. Uh, There was the failure of shock therapy in the former Soviet Union, uh, which instead of generating growth, instead generated one of the worst depressions in economic history in the former Soviet Union, as people tried to implement uh, shock therapy to introduce free markets overnight. And then, of course, we have had some rapid growth episodes, but unfortunately, the one characteristic that has been pointed out of rapid growth episodes is they don't last. Uh, almost all rapid growth episodes are, are, are a very brief duration and are not sustained. Miracles don't last. And this, this is the, what we've had after the fact. There's also kind of the embarrassing fact that uh, we haven't done all that well predicting country success and failure before the fact as development economists. So I'm going back to some of the old development economists. How well did they do predicting which countries would succeed? Well, there was, uh, there was one prediction that there was this, this one country that unveiled a development program and uh, the World Bank economists just kind of rolled on the floor laughing out loud when they saw the development program and they said it's, it's inconceivable that exports will rise as much as projected. Uh, the World Bank economists looked at this, they just, this was a, a World Bank mission in 1962, uh, this is completely ridiculous, this is, these people have lost their minds. These people were Korea in 1962, whose growth exceeded all of the projections that were in that in that document. That the World Bank was laughing at. Uh, then we had uh, other people elsewhere. We had uh, prominent economists worrying about population growth in one country that was going to be the a, a potentially explosive problem, leading to a mounting unemployment burden. That was that that big disaster that is known as Singapore, uh, as and the prediction was from uh, Nobel laureate Gunnar Myrdal in 1968. Uh, But there was uh, at least one success story that the World Bank uh, correctly called, a country that had made remarkable economic progress, whose long-run potential compares favorably with that of all other countries in Southeast Asia. That was the World Bank on Burma in 1958. So... And then, of course, we've been surprised by success um, in several ways. Uh, as I already mentioned, rapid growth didn't last. So the, the stars of the 60s and 70s were actually not China and India. They were Brazil and Cote d'Ivoire who have done much worse since the 60s and 70s. China and India did poorly in the 60s and 70s comparatively, and have done great since, as you all know. Uh, then there, are, uh, w- there is one group of really consistent great growth performers, which are the East Asian Miracles. The World Bank wrote a big report in in uh, 1993 called the East Asian Miracle that celebrated the success of eight countries. Then, uh, of course, all of them are, are all very well-known examples of rapid growth to you. Uh, the only embarrassing thing about that is that no one has either then or before then has succeeded in replicating the East Asian miracle anywhere else. If it were so obvious how the East Asian miracle happened, then you would think it would be able to be replicated in, you know, uh Democratic Republic of the Congo or some random country that was trying to achieve rapid growth. But it, economists totally failed to replicate the East Asian miracles anywhere else. And what's more, the East Asian miracles even failed to replicate their own success after their success had been uh, celebrated in the in the World Bank report, sure enough, after the World Bank report came out in 1993, the, since then the East Asian miracles have regressed strongly to the world mean, where now they're just barely growing above the world the world average. Uh, so I guess the lesson of the last two slides is, uh, uh, whenever the World Bank issues a report celebrating a country's success, you should immediately go short on that country and and. Uh, <laughs> And the country itself should try to persuade the World Bank not to issue any reports on its success. So Hayek, now here is my first quote from Hayek, the first of several that will be in this presentation. Hayek actually predicted that that growth would be unpredictable. And he predicted that economists would, be, would fail to predict which policies create a growth. This was back in uh, uh, an article written in 1968 in which he predicted unpredictability. Uh, So Hayek uh, knew something that the rest of us didn't at that time. He said, it seems incredible to me that we can determine in advance the future structure of a society in which the major problem is still to find out what kinds of material and human productive forces are present, or that we should be in a position in such a, a country to predict the particular consequences of a given measure." So that was Hayek. He got it exactly right, uh, that, that everything would be unpredictable. Uh, why, is it, why is everything so unpredictable? One, one reason is that uh, this unpredictability happens at every level. It's not only unpredictable which countries will succeed. Within each country, it's unpredictable which industries will succeed. Who would have predicted that India, the big success story in India, which is uh, has a great scarcity of skilled labor, would be the skill-intensive IT sector, that that would be the big hit. Or that garments would be the big hit in Bangladesh. Or that electronic integrated circuits would be the big hit in Philippines, which has taken over 71% of the world market. Or that cut flowers from Kenya would take over uh, 40% of the European market and cut flowers. Nobody predicted these things. These things are completely unpredictable. Or my favorite one that... Egypt uh, found a big hit, in uh, and which actually earns it. This one product exported to one country earns Egypt 30% of its manufacturing export revenues, and that is uh, bathroom ceramics exported to Italy. So this was a surprise. It's not really something that lends itself to a recipe. I don't think anyone has run around saying, oh, thank God Egypt has shown us the way. The secret is export bathroom ceramics to Italy, <laughs> and then you will become rich. Uh, What's really going on is this phenomenon uh, that that there are always big hits. Uh, The top three manufacturing goods out of 3,000 possible six-digit categories of manufacturing goods in every country on average account for about a third of all manufacturing export revenues. And the top-ranked export of a country among manufacturing exports produces 17 times more value than the 10th-ranked export manufacturing, export. So there's this incredible concentration of big hits that are of enormous scale. They're huge successes, and yet nobody can predict where, where they will emerge, when they will emerge, what they, what they will be when they emerge. All we know is that they make some entrepreneurs extremely rich. Uh, with the latest Forbes 400, uh, bill, the latest Forbes list of billionaires, we've seen some remarkable billionaires emar- emerge from poor countries. There's a Nigerian who's worth $3.3 There's The number third-ranked billionaire in the entire world is an Indian named Lakshmi Mittal, who's made $45 billion from producing steel better than anyone else in the world. So not only the what is unpredictable, the who is unpredictable, the where is unpredictable, and the when is unpredictable. So let's call on Hayek again to explain all this to us. What is the system that is best equipped to cope with this enormous unpredictability? Well, it's free market competition. Hayek said free market competition is important primarily as a discovery procedure whereby entrepreneurs constantly search for unexploited opportunities that can also be taken advantage of by others. This, again, is Hayek in 1968. He understood this enormous unpredictability was itself the best argument possible for free market competition, that that is the system that leads to this decentralized search for big hits that that lead to huge returns. And in case you think that Hayek was talking about rich countries, Hayek in the next sentence said, this is true to an even greater extent in underdeveloped societies. And then uh, a more colloquial way to say this, I think, was uh, uh, given by this uh, unsuspected economist that you may not know about, named, uh, a screenwriter named William Goldman, who's written many Hollywood sc- hit screenplays himself. He wrote a book about his life as a screenwriter called Adventures in the Screen Trade, and he sort of gave the Hayekian view of Hollywood. Uh, But he put it a little bit more bluntly. Nobody knows anything. Why did Paramount say yes to Raiders of the Lost Ark? Because nobody knows anything. Why did all the other studios say no? Because nobody knows anything. Why did Universal, the mightiest studio of all, pass on Star Wars and thus forever lose the opportunity to star Natalie Portman? Uh, Because nobody, nobody, not now, not ever, Knows the least goddamn thing about what is or isn't going to work at the box office. Well, am I allowed to say goddamn at the Cato Institute? Thank you. Lowercase. Thank you. Um, I don't know if you have a, like a two-second delay on the microphone here with a, a bleep, but so despite the lack of knowledge about how to achieve developments. Uh, There are all these poor people that have the nerve to achieve development anyway, in spite of the lack of our expert advice to them. Over the past 50 years, far from there being uh, a poverty trap, there was parallel growth on average of rich and poor countries. There's no systematic difference on average if you measure who is rich and who is poor at the beginning of each period over the last 50 years between the rich and the poor countries. They've both grown at about 2% per capita on average. Uh, 2% per capita is not the greatest growth rate of all time, but it's unprecedented in human history uh, that the whole world would be growing at 2% per capita. And that was enough to just fuel the greatest mass escape from poverty in human history, which has happened in my lifetime. I'm 50 years old, and so over the past 50 years... I'm not taking personal credit for this, but uh, over the past 50 years, we've had the greatest mass escape from poverty in human history. Now, was this due to the genius of foreign aid? Uh, Well, let's just look at the numbers. Even if we were remarkably, even if everything I ever said, uh, everything negative that I've ever said about foreign aid was completely wrong, and we took the most optimistic view of foreign aid, that every dollar of foreign aid reaches a poor person, and increases the income of the poor person one for one. Would foreign aid even then have been the explanation for the greatest mass escape from poverty in human history? Let's look at the numbers. Today, foreign aid is $100 billion per year. How much income are poor citizens of poor, citizens of poor countries producing for themselves every year? Uh, they're producing exactly $24,798 billion every year. So in case you're in case, uh, uh, you're in case you're not getting the point, the number on the right is a lot bigger than the number on the left. <laughs> a lot bigger. so this, we're talking about homegrown uh, success that people have created for themselves. Poor citizens have created uh, more income for themselves for the, to lift themselves out of poverty to now reach twenty five trillion dollars in GDP for the the poor world, and while we're talking about individual freedom i don't uh, I, this is just kind of a throwaway slide, but I want to remind you that another big th- factor in the greatest mass escape from poverty in world history that we've seen in our generation have been the remarkable inventions and the diff- diffusion of inventions. Uh, where both the invention and the diffusion are largely due to individual creativity and not to, and the diffusion meaning you need to do a lot of adapting to take an invention made in one place and adapt it to another place. And all of this is a story of individual creativity. This is not, uh, none of these things here were were uh, invented by a government committee or an an international Millennium Development Goals task force. Uh, these were things that were stumbled upon by individual, by, by first some individual who discovered a, a technological breakthrough, and then other individuals discovered further technological breakthroughs to make all of these inventions uh, change our lives radically. And that was that's the story of technology that has supported the the. Great escape from poverty, culminating of course, in the greatest invention of them all, which I have pictured in the upper right the the iPod so now we 're finally ready. How to achieve development we 're finally at the point where I can tell you Hayek 's secret uh, Hayek did come up with a secret to development, and i 'm going to give it to you. I was supposed to have a drum roll operate at this point, but I, it looks like it 's not uh, not working. Let me see if I can click on this. Nope. the drum roll technology didn't work. So just imagine a drum roll here. You ready for the, you ready for the answer? You've been waiting 50 years. That's all the enthusiasm you can show when you're about to learn the secret to economic development. Mm. You've been waiting 50 years and now you're, it's coming. Okay, you ready? Here's Hayek's secret. There never has been a secret to development. There's not now a secret to development. There never will be a secret to development. Uh, The secret to development, which takes a lot of intellectual courage to discover this secret, the secret to development is that there is no secret. Hayek put it in a much more eloquent way. So I'm going to... uh, uh, This... Hayek explained that the the the, re, the fact that there is no secret is itself the strongest argument possible for individual liberty. And here's Hayek's secret. He said, "If there were omniscient men," he said this way back in 1960. If if only people had listened to him, rather than dismissing him as a as a crank for for many years. You know, I was. Uh, When I got my PhD in in the early 80s in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, you know, you could not, as an economist, you could not admit openly to admiring Friedrich Hayek in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That would be, you know, that would be a a huge source of scandal and shame. You know, I would, uh, you know, if I admitted to, in that time, uh, admiring Friedrich Hayek, I would have had to have sort of like one of those standard scandal news conferences, you know, where... My, my glum looking wife would be standing by my side <laughs> and I would say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I've I betrayed the, my sacred trust to the economics profession and my family and I want to begin the healing process I've you know, been in love with the ideas of Friedrich Hayek and <laughs> I just want to get that out in the open now um so here's, here's Hayek's secret. If, if there were omniscient men, if we could know not only all our present wishes, but all, also all our future wants and desires, there would be little case for liberty. And in turn, liberty of the individual would make complete foresight impossible. It's liberty that has made for all this tremendous unpredictability that I was talking about earlier. It's the fact that free individuals, you cannot predict what they will do next. Liberty is essential to leave room for the unforeseeable and unpredictable. We want it because we have learned to expect from it the opportunity of realizing many of our aims. It is because every individual knows so little and because we rarely know which of us knows best that we trust the independent and competitive efforts of many to induce the emergence of what we shall want when we see it. That is, in one sentence, the the secret to economic development. Uh, Liberty to make possible the unforeseeable, unpredictable, through the independent and competitive efforts of many, so that we have the completely... Spontaneous emergence of what we shall definitely, definitely want when we see it. And so here we see the emergence of what we want from freedom. The more uh, f- This is a measure of economic freedom. The more economic freedom there is, uh, the, the more people get, the richer they are, and the more they get in the way of material possessions, in the way of you know computers and iPods and cars and all those things I, that I showed you before. Uh, here's a measure of political freedom. Political freedom measured on the horizontal axis. And again, uh, per capita affluence measured on the vertical axis. So here's the emergence of what we want from political freedom. Now, let me caution you right away about what conclusion not to draw from this graph. Here is, if you if you. Th- if you think that this is the answer, then you still have not quite gotten Hayek's point. If you think that the answer was, well, oh, we know the answer. Just immediately implement democratic capitalism and poor societies will become rich. That's not the answer. That's still not the answer. Because no one, there's no one in a position to implement democratic capitalism. You, there's no one who can be put in charge to implement de- democratic capitalism. That's a contradiction in terms. And here Hayek explains the process some more. So here's you know, the fruit of all my late night reading of Hayek is all these quotes I pasted in here. You know, this is kind of a standard lazy way to give a speech. It's rather than come up with your own material, you just quote someone else uh, who, who understands things better than you do. So here's another great quote from Hayek. Uh, the interaction of individuals possessing different views is what constitutes the life of thought. The growth of reason is based on the existence of such differences. Its results cannot be predicted. Here again, he's harping on this stuff that cannot be predicted. But we've seen that's a, that's a great thing to harp on because if there's anything else about growth and development, it's that it's completely unpredictable. That we cannot know which views will assist this growth and which will not. To plan or organize progress is a contradiction in terms. I wish that could be put on the, on the, the wall of the World Bank, <laughs> where, right beneath the slogan where they say, our dream is a world f- free of poverty. you know, Well, they have no clue how to, how to achieve that, so I'd like to put it beneath it. To plan or organize progress is a contradiction in terms. Take that, Millennium Development Goals. Pow. <laughs> uh, individualism. Individual liberty. Individual liberty is an attitude of humility before this social process, this spontaneous social process, and of tolerance to other opinions, and is the exact opposite of that intellectual hubris which demands comprehensive direction of the social process. This is exactly where development has gone wrong for fifty years is that we demand comprehensive direction of the social process. And that demand leads to undevelopment. It leads to lack of development. It leads to underdevelopment. Hayek's insight was giving up on that demand for direction of the social process is what leads to liberty and development. So how do you create the conditions for individual freedom? How do you... Cre- uh, so, it, you know, individual freedom seems to be, you know, the the big thing going on here. So how do you create the conditions for individual freedom? That's... Now, there's sort of an infinite regress here. You say individual freedom is what matters, but then how do you create individual freedom? So the conventional answer, which, again, completely fails to understand uh, Hayek's insight, is the conventional answer is get, to, get together a bunch of experts on institutions, assemble all the world's leading experts on institutions for, that promote economic freedom, and have them design the right institutions for economic freedom. And then uh, have those implemented by tomorrow. That's the conventional answer. Here's Hayek's answer. The value of freedom consists mainly in the opportunity for the growth of the undesigned. And And the beneficial functioning of a free society rests largely on the existence of such freely grown institutions. So, Hayek is saying, no, you still don't get it. You can't put the experts in charge of designing the institutions that promote freedom if the institutions themselves emerge from freedom. It's the institutions themselves emerge spontaneously from free individuals. That's the growth of the undesigned. No one's designing institutions. The beneficial fun- functioning of a free society rests largely on the existence. Of such freely grown institutions, I know I'm really stretching the uh, the, the stretching the the paradox here to the o- utmost. There has certainly been no successful a- attempt to operate a free society without a genuine reverence for grown institutions. So the opposite of freedom is you try to do s- top-down social engineering to try to make the right institutions. Uh, the the meaning of freedom is that you allow out of free individuals institutions to grow to accommodate that freedom now that's this may sound really hopeless how is freedom just going to spontaneously grow from free individuals how is it going to emerge how are we going to get these uh you know this this just drives people crazy when you say things like this that it's the growth of the undesigned it's freely grown institutions. Well, uh, I don't know. I'm sorry if this paradox kind of disappoints all of you and me who made our careers as kind of social engineers of institutions. But the good news is that freedom is actually spreading around the world. Uh, there's something happening. That there's something happening here. To quote the uh, the line of uh, an old. Really smarmy, sentimental rock song that I uh, that I play that my kids cringe at. Something is happening here, and something some, the something happening here is freedom is spreading around the world. Here's two graphs: one on economic freedom and one on political freedom. You know, very very subtly de- depicted in the colors of red, white, and blue. Uh, the red is the not free. The white is the partly free, and the blue is the free, uh, where, of course, these, uh, the, these are based on measures which are imperfect, and the definitions of not free and free are very imperfect, so we're dealing with imperfect measures here, but they, they do give us some idea of what is going on around the world. And this is, you know, the, the, the share of countries around the world that fall into these three categories. Economic freedom has been growing at the expense of economic unfreedom. Political freedom has been growing at the expense of political unfreedom, at the expense of political oppression and repression and violation of human rights and oppression of the individual. Freedom has been growing. So it's happening. Uh, Freely grown institutions are happening. So... Let's keep let's keep pushing this paradox to the utmost. That the the key to understanding freedom is that is to not say freedom is itself the secret. I'm still going to stick to the the principle that the secret to development is that there is no secret. Freedom is not the secret. It is the recognition there is no secret, and it's the willingness to acquiesce in a spontaneous order in which there is uh, freedom for individuals. To, so any expert recommending some comprehensive reorganization of a society, even if he recommends it or she recommends it in the name of, in the name of freedom, uh, even, if, even if they call it free-market reforms, a package of top-down free-market reforms designed by free-market experts at the World Bank and the IMF, which I, of which I used to be one, uh, that whole idea is violating freedom. Freedom emerges from the bottom up. There is some freedom initially of individuals, and free individuals act in a way that leads to more freedom. Economic and political freedoms feed on each other. The success of individual business and technological entrepreneurs generates demand for more individual freedom to accommodate and exploit the success that individual business and technological entrepreneurs Have created. So people have got it just backwards. They think we need to come in. Our social engineers first need to come in and create the institutions for freedom, and then you can have individual business and technological entrepreneurs operate freely. Well, it's people completely forget that the more powerful direction is the other way around. That individual business and and technological entrepreneurs discover great successes, and that creates the demand for more freedom and leads to uh, spreading support for more individual freedom. And then individual political and social entrepreneurs come up with novel, incremental solutions to get more freedom. And so that's the process that Hayek was talking about, by which free institutions are not made. They are not made by human hands. They are grown spontaneously out of the interaction of many free individuals out of many entrepreneurs in the business, political, and social worlds. But I know that this makes you very unhappy, because all of us sitting in this room want to do something to help poor people. I'm almost, yeah, I'm almost done. This, this is the conclusion. So, all of you want an answer to this question. What do you do? What do we do if we want to help make poor people richer? Well, I have several suggestions that I think are constructive, uh, even though even in a world where the secret is that there is no secret. Uh, first, to uh, take advantage of the power of ideas. Uh, the idea of individual freedom is itself a great entrepreneurial, intellectual, entrepreneurial innovation, who who's, has just barely begun to, to catch on in the world today. So use the power of ideas to spread the idea of individual freedom. Why individual freedom is the only thing that works to accommodate the enormous unpredictability of development. To give its intuition, to stress the historical record that where freedom has grown, poverty has ended. That freedom has tremendous force to end poverty. Second, to oppose ideas that seek collective expert direction of development uh, not to mention anything, and specifically, but you know, any, basically, any effort by the United Nations, IMF, or World Bank, uh, any effort known by something called the Millennium Development Goals, or uh, any anything like that, exp- oppose ideas that seek collective expert direction of development. Actually, there's a a great new book that is just has just come out today, uh, called Commonwealth. Uh, the, the title of the book is Commonwealth, and it's uh, ideas for solving all of the world's problems uh, by that great uh, fan of Friedrich Hayek, named um, um, the name is escaping me. Um, oh, Jeffrey Sachs. Uh, <laughs> he's, if you if you want to uh, if you want to know how not to achieve uh, freedom and development, then read read this new book that has come out today, Commonwealth on how to uh, implement collective expert direction of development in a way that will lead, that is guaranteed to lead to underdevelopment. And lastly, yourself. Be a business, political, or social entrepreneur to discover very specific breakthroughs that will help the poor. You all have the potential, I have the potential, all of us have the potential to be those entrepreneurs that discover great breakthroughs like those that I've already mentioned either in the private sector or in the public sector, that will achieve a lot of good for poor people. So what was Hayek's answer? Hayek's answer, he, he refused to answer the question, what is the secret to development? Because it had no answer. He wouldn't answer the what. He refused to answer the question, which societies will find the secret to development? Because it's impossible to predict. Uh, but he did have an answer to one question, which is, he did agree to answer the question, who is the secret to development? Who is the secret to development? Have you guessed the answer by now? The the answer to the question to who is the secret to development? The answer is each of you, free individuals, seeking another powerful thing such that the rest of us will want it when we see it. So the answer to the question is who, to the question who is the secret to development? Who is the secret to development? The answer is you. You are the secret to development. So if you, if you need a little bit more inspiration to, uh, to survive in the brave new world where everything is unpredictable and only individual liberty works to achieve development, I'll close with... Uh, My favorite phrase uh, of political oratory of all time, which is Lincoln's, is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that we here highly resolve, I hear I'm paraphrasing a little bit, that we here highly resolve that our world shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth.
0: Thanks, Bill. I think those were hopeful comments, uh, even though you didn't give us a, a detailed direction on how to get development. But that's why we also have invited Arvind Subramanian here. Arvind uh, has, for many years, worked at the, at the IMF most recently, uh, before leaving the IMF, as assistant director in the research department which uh, has done, really in recent years, tremendous work on on the issue of economic development, stressing, uh, importantly, economic freedom, and, uh, uh, and, and that is, of course, a big component of individual uh, liberty. He is now a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Uh, he's also a fellow at the Center for Global Development here in Washington, D.C., and he has also served Uh, for GATT, uh, the General Agreement on Tariff and Trade, uh, in the past. So he has a wide experience with multilateral uh, institutions and economic development. Generally, please help me welcome Arvind Subramanian.
2: Uh, Thanks a lot, Yin, uh, for inviting me here. Um, It's I was going to say it's always a pleasure to come, but as the first time I'm coming here, so it, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, if I can find my, uh, do you know where I should go to the desktop or? Do you know how
0: find? I don't know. Can you have oh, on the desktop? Okay. What's on the
2: desktop?
0: We're, we have to search for it. Yes, it's on the desktop. Shall so we just go there then?
2: Okay then. then. Yeah you want to find it then okay that's cool it's it's always a a really difficult act to follow uh, bill um, you know there's there's bill the economist to cope with there's bill the orator and now bill the you know uh the great speaker uh and and um, peddler of freedom, if I may say so, uh, to to contend with. Um, And of course, I I didn't have uh, Bill's uh, presentation, um, and unlike uh, the erudite Bill, uh, I I didn't go and read up Hayek. I just went to Wikipedia to get some uh, Hayek (laughs) uh, quotes. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and just to ensure that I had some measure of respectability in terms of knowing about Hayek uh, I went and read a very nice piece in the New Yorker by Jim Cassidy on on Hayek so, so my knowledge of uh, uh, Hayek is, is is fairly limited uh, apart from what I know uh, what I've picked up over the years now this is, I know this is the Cato Institute and, and this is an event on Hayek and, and, and we have just heard Bill uh, uh, but uh, I don't think uh, uh, I'm going to let that stop me from uh, challenging, uh, uh, well, endorsing some, but also challenging some uh, some pretty uh, important things that, that uh, either Hayek has said or has Bill has said on his on his behalf. Um, so, so hopefully, uh, you know, I will have uh, we'll have an interesting discussion uh, so that there's some kind of back and forth here. So, so the way I think about Hayek, at least uh, the two big ideas of his uh, through which I think one can uh, view development or the development experience, uh, <clears throat> is that, you know, this is the thing about, I should have added, economic and political decentralization, you know, the magic of markets, the power to assimilate information, uh, the screw-ups associated with centralized planning, which, which Bill has suggested. Uh, and the second idea is the idea of the fatal conceit, um, and I want to break it up into into, into two bits because I, I think a lot of what Bill says, I think, uh, conflates two two very different issues. One is you know the fatal conceit of outsiders, uh, uh, and the other is 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 a more questionable or, or at least certainly more open to discussion is, is you know do insiders also suffer from a fatal conceit necessarily? And and I'm going to argue that, you know, uh, uh, what Bill has said actually um, uh, is kind of a false opposition. And and there is a serious question about, you know, uh, uh, the question of the fatal conceit of insiders, uh, because the the opposite of, you know, uh, let freedom rule, let let, uh, people decide is not you know, uh, planners sitting in, in, in on 19th Street directing development. I mean, uh, the real world is about within capitals, within countries, you have policymakers, and, you know, and they have choices to make, uh, decisions to take, uh, and the question is, what should they do? And, and we know, uh, as Bill rightly said, that although uh, centralized planning from Washington and New York has failed, we know that, you know, policy makers have made a number of successful choices, which is why development has succeeded uh, around the world. So, so we can't ultimately get away from the question of, you know, o- o- the so-called fatal conceit of, of policy makers within countries. So, so what, does, what does Hayek have to say about these things, uh, and what does the development experience have to say about things? I mean, the easy bit is for me, and I'm going to begin with the fatal conceit of, of outsiders – uh, is the whole notion of planning from, from outside. And, and here, you know, I am 100% w- with Bill. Uh, this is a, a graph from a paper, a chart from a paper that I did, did with Ragu on on aid and growth, which uh, got us into a lot of trouble, which basically tends to suggest that, you know, uh, countries that receive more aid, uh, I mean, if anything, grow slower on average. So, so, uh, so, so I, I think a, a lot of credit to, to Bill for having, you know, uh, debunking uh, this idea a- and you know, just to quote again his, his favorite economist and my favorite economist uh, Robert Solos once said that the job of economists is to consign bad ideas to the dustbin because you know, they can't have a, there are no good ideas in economics but at least the job is to consign bad ideas to the dustbin and here I think Bill, is, Bill is doing a, a, a great job of at least consigning one of these um, uh, ideas to the dustbin um, now you know, we have various versions of this, you know, uh, fatal conceit of outsiders being able to to, to direct or determine development. And I, I recall here once, um, uh, Galbraith once, uh, you know, they were having this discussion on foreign aid. And he kind of said, no, 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 aid is very useful. It can be helpful provided a set of prerequisites are met. Uh, and he listed, you know, the usual 25 uh, list of things to which Albert Hirschman replied, you know, you know, if we could meet these conditions, the country wouldn't need aid in the first place. So, 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 uh, so, so foreign aid and, and the outsider conceit, I think Bill is uh, absolutely right on that. But what about the other central insight of uh, Hayek and which you know, Bill has spoken very eloquently about, um, uh, economic and political decentralization? I think, uh, I mean, I'm going to argue that it's only half right or at least incomplete uh, or at least not completely consistent with the evidence, uh, and that there are lots of interesting questions here which uh, don't necessarily follow from or are consistent with with the, with, with, what, with the Hayek view of the world. I think it's broadly right, because on average it is true, uh, as Bill said, you know, in the last 25, 30 years, we've seen huge increases in growth, huge reductions in poverty, and surely a lot of that has to do with this move towards... Uh, Uh, economic decentralization uh, that Bill spoke about. But I think uh, the way I see it, there is a really deep puzzle uh, lurking in the background of development experience, which is that it is not the case that countries that have reformed the most, i.e. that have undertaken the most economic and political decentralization, are the countries that have done better. Uh, Let me show you a few charts. Um, the IMF now is compiling these very nice indicators of, uh, you know, reform, how much market reform has taken place uh, around the world. And I'll just show you one chart, but I think the picture is generally true. This is, for example, how messed up are banking sectors within countries. And no matter what kinds of charts of these, si- of these type you see, uh, two things stand out, that whether you take the current level of how messed up countries are, or how much change there has been over time in terms of undertaking market reforms, you will find that Africa and Latin America do much better than many other countries. I.e., between, let's say, 70 and 80 and now, uh, Africa and Latin America have reformed the most, and on most indicators, in terms of how open they are, they're actually much more open than many of the so-called Messed up countries. Now, but of course, the performance has been very different. The star performers in the world over the last uh, 25 years and even going back over 40 years are, you know, in the first period, as Bill mentioned, East Asia, but in the last 20 to 25 years, it's uh, China, India, and Vietnam. Uh, and Latin America, which did so well uh, between 16 and 80, after 20 years of reforms, not only is doing much worse than China, India, and Vietnam, it's also doing much worse relative to its own past before 1980. So, so I don't think we can get away from this, this deep puzzle about the development experience of the last 25 years. You know, uh, China, Vietnam, and India, as I've said, have done much better than the ones that have either reformed more or are more open i.e., uh, in the sense of Hayek. Uh, just to give an example, India, there's been very little privatization. The public sector dominates the banking system. It's more closed to trade and foreign capital than almost any country that you can think of. It has a highly over-regulated labor market. Uh, And yet in the last 25 years, it's grown amongst the fastest in the world. And in the last four or five years, has really uh, grown uh, very rapidly. And same is true for China, you know, it's, it's a messed up system, it's still a socialist system uh, and a point that uh, Danny Roderick makes, I think, is quite compelling, that if in fact China, India and Vietnam and countries like that had been doing worse than they are and doing worse than, uh, uh, than Latin America and Africa I mean, this would be a, a, a kind of um, a home run for, for, for the Hayekian view of the world, you know, more economic uh, decentralization uh, the faster the growth, uh, but but that's not what 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 the data shows you. So so this is uh, 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 I think a, a deep puzzle about the contemporary uh, development experience. Now, l- let me just add that uh, I've been speaking about economic decentralization, but <laughs> if anything, if anything, it's even more true of political decentralization and the development experience. You know, let me say say first of all that you know of democracy, et cetera, have intrinsic value. So uh, I'm not saying that choices about these things insofar as there are choices uh, should be made just on the basis of whether these things get you more growth and more uh, poverty reduction, etc. But, but But leaving aside the intrinsic value of these things, I mean, if you were to ask, you know, is there a connection between political decentralization and economic performance, uh, I think you would find a very, very mixed picture, um, so, so here are two, uh, st- uh, I mean, I think striking facts. The only two countries in Africa that have grown sustainably over the last 40 years, the only two countries are Botswana and Mauritius. And, and what is common to them, they are the only two countries in Africa that have been sustained and uninterrupted democracy since independence. So this would be like, you know, uh, strike one for H- von Hayek uh, 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 and Bill. But the problem is, uh, you know, you, you look around East Asia, the model very much has been uh, lack of political uh, decentralisation for long, long periods, uh, uh, rapid growth. You know, you think of the East Asian countries, uh, and then either then eventually political decentralisation catches up with economic decentralisation, as in um, you know, um, uh, Korea, Thailand, Indonesia, or it doesn't catch up at all, as as in kind of Singapore, uh, uh, for example, and and China. So, so, so to say that you know political decentralisation is going to is, is the answer to economic development is certainly not consistent uh, with the data, uh, and and uh, 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 it's difficult to make a case for these things just on the basis that you know these will deliver uh, 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 economic development. Uh, I don't think that's uh, borne out. Uh, by the data. So, so, so how does one think, understand this puzzle? And the way I think about it is, is the following, that um, there's no question that, you know, markets are important to create the opportunities, uh, the incentives uh, for the private sector. But, I mean, if what I said is just right, that that's not enough, because certainly uh, the countries that have done more in this direction are not the countries that on average have grown faster, then there's something else going on here. Uh, uh, And that, you know, uh, economic decentralization is important, but it's not, at least over these periods that we've studied, not decisive in terms of generating long-run growth so 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 the way i think of it is that you know there is some there is a black box out there which we don't fully understand and it's that interaction between this black box and the opportunities created by by markets and economic decentralization that delivers on on economic development what this black box is i completely agree with with bill and and, and von hayek i mean Uh, we don't really know because certainly the the experience has been very, very heterogeneous uh, uh, in the last 25, 30 years. Uh, In the case of Uh, India, for example, the the skills that are uh, 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 the skills-based IT revolution that you know everyone celebrates now was created completely. You know, um, it was it was uh, historically created, created by the government and under uh, you know unusual circumstances, and it just happens to be a matter of luck today that India turned out to have these skills in order to exploit the opportunities created by the IT revolution, and of course, you know, in the case of China, uh, yeah. In the case of China, I mean, dare we say it? I mean, some of the uh, some of the capabilities that China has had uh, to create the growth have been created by have been a, a creation of of communism. So. Uh, so, so I'm not saying, therefore, that, you know, uh, communism sh- is the recipe or, or the, is important to create the capabilities. But it's, it's something that we just don't understand. But, but the essential point is that just economic decentralization is not delivering, uh, uh, you know, all, all the goodies that, that 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 we want out of an economic system. So, so I think... Um, it's clear that we do have a robust understanding of the negative agenda, you know, what not to do. Uh, you know, it's easy to say, don't be a Zimbabwe, don't, don't create, don't debase the currency, don't create hyperinflation, uh, don't expropriate wealth, uh, and, and, and some basic... Don't we have a good sense of. But beyond that, I think there are at least two kinds of uncertainties which are very much consistent with the Hayekian notion of, of the fatal conceit. You know, Kierkegaard said that, you know, life is lived forward but understood backwards. But I think uh, in the case of development, both the retrospective understanding uh, is riddled with under, uh, uncertainties uh, and even more so about the prospective, you know, uh, policy agenda for what to do. To get some of these uh, things that deliver economic development, you know, I don't want to go through the, the 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 uncertainty on the on the retrospective understanding because I think Bill himself has written uh, uh, eloquently. In fact, his his first book, uh, *The Elusive Quest for Growth*, actually goes through some of these so-called uh, magic bullets mantras which never de- delivered. And so there's a lot of you know. We genuinely don't know uh, uh, because we thought education would be good, but it didn't deliver. We thought health would be good. We know that health uh, doesn't necessarily de- deliver development. Uh, and, of course, you know, the, the autocracy, democracy question, as I just said, is still completely completely open in terms of at least a growth over you know, 20, 30, 40 years' uh, time spans. Uh, I was going to show you uh, uh, two clips. I don't know whether it's going to work. Um, because now we talk about you know institutions and formal rules of the game, um, and I would urge you to go and uh, 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 note down and go to these websites. Because in this all this talk about creating institutions, uh, the first uh, uh, the first link takes you to a uh, to a crossing in, in in Vietnam where there are apps. There are no traffic lights. Uh, but, but the traffic flows very smoothly. And the second one takes you to Russia, where, where there are very efficient traffic lights, and it's a hellhole in terms of accidents. So, so, uh, so, so we don't really know what to make of this thing about, you know, uh, create, create formal rules as well. Uh, s- s- similarly, I think there's a, there's a real uncertainty, and this is where I think a uh, uh, thing comes in, you know, what should we do? Do policymakers really have the freedom given that so much of it is luck and unintended consequence and, you know, inherently unknowable or, you know, to use uh, Donald Rumsfeld's fails, you know, uh, the unknown unknowns or the unknown, the never knowables, as it were. And also a lot of it is, of course, historically determined. You know, a a country has good institutions, but... Uh, you know, uh, again, as has Bill has written, and as others have written, many of these institutions are historically determined. So it's not clear, you know, what someone can do to acquire these uh, good institutions. Okay. So my last slide is the following: is that now, where do we stand on, on, on the policy agenda? And remember, yet we're talking not about centralized planning from Washington, you know, but there are ministers and elected officials and policymakers within governments who need to make choices. You know, for example, in India, teachers don't show up to classrooms. I mean, it's it's very easy to say, you know, let it be, you know, they will automatically come up, you know, the market will find its solution, but there are actual choices that governments have to make. For ex- even in terms of entrepreneurship th- th- that Bill was speaking about, can the government create conditions for entrepreneurship? Uh, to give you a good example, is it always the case that you should have, you know, completely free markets, or should it be the case that governments should actually provide for rents to create the conditions for, for on- entrepreneurship? So so if I have one takeaway at the end is that it seems to be the case that successful developers, uh, uh, countries, have somehow had the capacity to figure out these things for themselves. So fatal conceit of the outsiders, fully agree. But... Within countries, there are still choices to be made, you know, decisions to be taken, and what do we think about that? And I think, sure, maybe the pendulum has swung too much in terms of saying, you know, the market will do everything on its own. Uh, Maybe what distinguishes the successful developers is that they have... Effective public capacity, state capacity, to figure these things out for themselves, and how to get that state capacity seems to be a, a, a big, big—I uh, uh, I would say—an agenda for further research and reflection. Thank you. Thank
0: you. you want to respond to yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Arvind. We'll give uh, Bill just the chance to respond to a couple of those comments
1: okay thanks Thanks, Arvin. Um i'm a big admirer of arvin's arvind's research and uh and i uh, appreciate very much his insights just now i think they're they're basically um, <clears throat> i just want to disagree with him in, on on two things uh first he's uh giving all these statistics on uh on how it's not the most reformist countries that have grown the most, and that actually the countries that have reformed the most have not, have, have grown the least or, you know, have done badly. And that's undeniably true. I, I, I totally agree with that. I've written papers on that. Other people have written papers on that. Um, I th- what is the lesson of this? I think the lesson is that you should not look for evidence of what works and what doesn't work in growth rates. In GDP growth rates over some relatively short period of time, and unfortunately, relatively short can even mean as long as ten or twenty years, uh, that we just cannot learn very much about what works and what doesn't work by uh, focusing on obsessively on growth rates as being the metric for success or failure. Because what what do growth rates really capture? Uh, they capture lots of different things. Uh, for one thing, growth rates are uh, heavily heavily influenced by how bad things were before you started to have rapid growth. Uh, one very good way to have rapid growth is to... Uh, I mean, one interpretation of the China the China model for having uh, rapid growth is uh, first you put a psychopathic maniac in charge of the economy who kills tens of millions of people and completely terrorizes anyone from doing anything and destroys whatever hope there is of any success by anybody... Uh, call him Chairman Mao just for purposes of illustration. And then thank God he dies and you get somewhat more sensible, pragmatic people take over and move away from you know, a homicidal assault on the, on the citizens of the country to sort of letting them operate in f- globalized free markets and take advantage of, of global free trade by themselves. That's, that's a formula for rapid growth. Um, so you know any one of you if you 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 can achieve rapid growth in income by uh, you know giving up everything you have and becoming a homeless person for a year you have a very low income for that year and then return to what you were doing before and be, be once again resume the business of becoming a successful high earning professional and then you have very rapid growth of your income from the time that you were a homeless person to the time that you were a high income professional so that's uh, that, growth really doesn't mean anything more than that. It just means things were really disastrous before, and now they're not so disastrous. They're better. So it, that that kind of evidence t- tells us very little about what is the key to success or failure. I think the, the the meaningful evidence is very much in levels, those graphs that I showed you before between economic and political freedom and the high, very high correlation with the level of development. I think that is what vindicates the Hayekian pr- Prediction that out of out of freedom will emerge, uh, the the successful meeting of the wants and needs that we can't even foresee or predict today of the population. And you know how does China and India do on that scale? Well, not so good. Uh, China was at uh, one tenth of uh, GDP before the new PPP revision. How much was China's income revised downward in the new
2: PPP? What forty percent?
1: Forty percent. So now it's at China's at about one twentieth of. U.S. per capita income. So, is China a great success? No, not yet. Uh, we have to wait for quite a while before we call China a great success. India was at one twentieth, and how much is it, where? Is India revised down? Also by forty percent. So now India is something like one one fortieth of uh, U.S. per capita income. Is that a great success? No, not yet. We're going to have to wait for a long while before we, we see whether India be, is is really a great success or not. It's levels. That matters I mean both both for the rationale that I gave you before, but also because levels is what matters for well being you don't uh, what what you know meets your material needs is your level of income, not your growth of income uh, the second point I disagreed with with Arvin is that the idea that there's uh, the key to success is that uh, the state has the capacity to make the wise choices to figure figure out the wise choices for all of society. Now, uh, certainly, there's an element of truth in this, but I think it's much more uh, chaotic than uh, than Arvin makes it out to be. Uh, I, th- I think Arvin's view is very much the conventional view uh, the, of a lot of a lot of economists. So I certainly respect that view, but it's a view which. I think engages in a little too much hero worship of, of, of you know, policymakers at the top and uh, basically jumps to the conclusion that if anything good happens in the economy, it must be to the, due to the credit of these heroic policymakers at the top that figured things out. And actually, we have no direct evidence of that. How do you, how would, do you actually uh, prove that uh, idea that the policymakers were such geniuses at the top? it seems instead to be what is known in in uh, social science as the halo effect that whenever there is a success you attribute it to the great leader at the top uh, and that's that's just an assu- that's just jumping to an assumption there's no evidence for that it's like you know when uh, if uh uh you know a football team wins the Super Bowl, and all of a sudden the coach who yesterday was an idiot becomes a genius just because of you know one play in the last seconds by which the the, the bumbling New York Giants suddenly surprised us after all these years and completely contrary to expectations when they dis- disappointed their fans reliably for you know hundreds and hundreds of times somehow in a game that was called the Super Bowl, they happened to somehow stumble into the end zone at the right moment and win the game. Suddenly their idiotic coach is now called a great genius because they won the game. Well, that's pretty much what we do when we say, you know, well, uh, oh, those Korean policymakers, they were such geniuses. They figured everything out. Uh, they they made the Well, you know, how do we know that? How do we know it wasn't uh, some really dynamic, Korean entrepreneurs that found big hits, and that set the whole chain in motion by which uh, the the leaders who may have been kind of clueless at the beginning gradually accommodated uh, the success of the private entrepreneurs. Now, I'm not I'm not saying that there is no role for the state whatsoever. I think it's a more chaotic role that individual political political operators, um, you know, under certain political systems that are that reward. Politicians for doing things that are good for economic development in a sort of competitive way, uh, that they do figure out opportunistic steps that that enhance the prospects for economic development. And there, I agree with Arvind that, you know, that it's that it's really insiders that do that. But it's, it happens in a very chaotic way. It's not that there's one wise, bot leader at the top. It's that there are individual entrepreneurs who figure out something will work. Who, by trial and error, kind of stumble on things that make the economy work better. You know, who would have figured out that uh, in China the town and village enterprises would be a great vehicle for success? Uh, that just nobody figured that figured it out at the top or the bottom. It just happened, and then people went with it. You know, uh, that's that's kind of the model for successful reform. Is is it's it's much more decentralized and chaotic than Arvin makes it out to be, and it above all respo- happens best in the systems. That, do, that are set up so as to be competitive that the best idea, political ideas win, which is you know, the system of political individual liberty in which we are free to dissent, free to debate ideas, free to call ideas stupid, free to shoot ideas down, do the thing that Arvin said, uh, economists are the, the garbage collectors that collect the trash and uh, collect all the bad ideas and dump them out in the trash and throw them away. Well, that's, that happens best in a free society. Where, where individuals have rights, where the individuals can speak out freely, where there's freedom of the press, where there's some kind of democratic accountability of the leaders to the, to the citizens. And I'm not, by the way, that this is one thing that bothers people a lot when you say, you know, democracy is part of the answer, is they say, well, there's all these problems with majority rule. I'm not saying it's just a matter of holding elections that are won by majority rule. That's not the panacea. There is no panacea like that. It's a very complex system of lots of elements of individual political freedom that include uh, some mechanism for accountability to the citizens. But it is not so simple as just hold elections. It's a, it's some, it involves institutions of individual liberty that have grown up uh, over many generations. And the best way to promote them is once again to come back to sort of convince people uh, you have to convince uh, individuals within the society to value individual liberty and to be willing to see individual liberty protected. I think that's the deeper struggle that we face in, in development, is not so much these, these surface struggles as to what policy to choose next, but to convince as many individuals as possible of the case for individual liberty, and then the best ideas will tend to win over time. Thanks very much. Do
0: you want to say anything? It's just a couple of things. Okay, quick, because I do want to take some questions from the audience. Um, Thank you.
2: You know, I, I, I uh, just two quick reactions. Uh, first, you know. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I would always favor a system with, you know, political decentralization and political freedoms over over the alternative. The question was whether it automatically follows that, you know, uh, those political freedoms is going to deliver development. That was the narrower question that uh, I was addressing. Uh, But uh, the point I want to make is that, you know, it's true that, you know, in the long run, what... uh, uh, Bill is saying is absolutely right. I mean, uh, lots of us have done research to, to show that in the long run, these things matter. But, but, but put yourself in the case, supposing you went to China in 1978, supposing the World Bank had gone to China in 1978. And God forbid, Bill, you would have had to suppose you had gone with that team in 1978 uh, to China. W- what uh, they would have said is, you know, let's say decentralization, economic decentralization. Um, and a whole laundry list of of kind of uh, reforms would have been uh, 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 put out. Uh, But the Chinese did something very different. Uh, And so far, it seems to have succeeded. Uh, So the question is, you know, uh, whether the 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 automatic whether economic decentralization automatically translates into that is 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 not not at all obvious. And, and finally, I think there is no. I think Bill, you're trying to create a false opposition between you know uh, uh, you know glorifying the heroes of the state uh, incorrectly versus not giving sufficient uh, thing to the to the private sector and the entrepreneurs uh, who come up. And, and I don't think it's, a, it's 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 an opposition at all. I think both are important, but I don't we should forget that you know, there are things that states need to do to create the conditions even for private entrepreneurship to flourish. So it, it can't just be a kind of Beatles-like let it be. You know. Which uh, comes first? That needs to be figured out. How do you know country. which comes first? That, that's, countries figure that out for themselves. Does first? the state come first
1: or does the private entrepreneur come first?
2: I mean, I would say that there's no question. I mean, if you were in a, you know, look at Iraq where you don't have a state, where in a Hobbesian state, you know, you you can't have entrepreneurship in, in Hobbesian states. In the
1: extreme, no. But
2: uh,
1: uh, suppose you have a, a mediocre state and then you have a really dynamic, successful entrepreneur that creates the the demand for a much more uh, capable state. So I think it goes both
0: ways, right? Okay. Okay, I want to take some uh, questions from the audience. Uh, raise your hand, uh, wait for the microphone, and then identify yourself and your affiliation, please. Uh, we'll take a question in the back, sitting there, please. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm Lena Johansen. I'm the journalism fellow at CI right now. Uh, without getting into the discussion of polycentric versus government run legal systems, uh, the one thing. None of you touched upon was the importance of contractual rights and how that creates the trust needed to create a market and and to start interactions. and Could could we get some more thoughts on that? Because none of you really touched it.
1: Talking about intellectual property rights? No,
0: not intellectual. Contractual rights.
1: Contractual rights. Yeah, the fact that
0: we or protection of contracts that you need to have kind of a protection of contracts to establish the trust necessary to have a functioning market. Okay, I'd like to take a couple of questions at a time, and then, because we're running a little bit behind. Let's take one there, and then the other one uh, right there. Um, uh, Kevin Finner, at the National Academy of
1: Sciences. Um, Solo is very popular in our community as well, largely because of his thoughts on the role of technology in economic growth. And, um, one of the preconditions for having technology and using it well is having an education system that provides both people who can be innovators at the top end and workers who can be successful in producing the technology. Um, I wonder what you think about the sort of policy or state role in education, and also what it means to have freedom in an educational
0: system. Okay, right there, like the next question.
1: Uh, yeah, two quick
0: questions uh, f- uh, for Bill, but also Arvind if he has, has a comment. On Did
2: you identify yourself, please? Yeah, Peter Whitney with Duke University. Uh, the case of the Korean um, entrepreneurs, and I've done a lot of work in Korea. Uh, isn't it fair to say that Park Chung Hee, not that he's a hero, he had a lot of flaws, did create a help create a system where these big hits could take place? And then the other question is: I know we looked at the manufacturing exports of you know your top three manufacturers, but I think the numbers really show that that disguises what's really going on, which is that three-quarters of trade is intra-industry trade, you know, the Ford Escort that's made out of 37 or 42 parts from all different countries. So I just want to be interested in your comments on those things.
0: Okay.
1: Okay. Um, Contractual rights. Um, Well, there are uh, uh, obviously... We all agree that those are those are necessary to make markets work. That contracts uh, have to be honored. Um, well, you know, just to continue in the contrarian vein that I seem to have gotten stuck in uh, today, uh, you know, the, there's uh, a very important way in which those emerge from the bottom up, and they're not they're not they don't emerge just by you know the state passing a law that says you know everybody shall honor thou thou shalt honor thy contracts from now on. You know, that that's not really how they emerge. There's uh, a lot of, it would be incredibly costly for the state to enforce all the contracts that make our economy and even our regular social lives function, uh, the kind of trust between us that we trust each other to keep certain obligations and agreements. Uh, that's A lot of that emerges from the bottom up, and there's been a lot of economic research about how self enforcing networks can sort of enforce their own contracts through reputational mechanisms that if you if you cheat that you you get expelled from the network and you forever lose opportunity to do business with the network so this again I think uh, we 've you know a- excessively gotten stuck in this top down mindset where the state has to make every have, has to put everything in place to make development possible and then development happens i don 't think that 's the way it happens at all i think it 's A lot of it is happening from the creativity from the bottom up of individuals that agree on, and Hayek was very big on this, on how sort of traditions and norms and rules evolve from the bottom up, and then they're kind of uh, ex-post-sanctified by the top-down laws of the state. Um, And kind of the same issue on whether education is a precondition for technology. Um, You know, I... I think we've gotten stuck too much in this sort of preconditions mentality that, this, that nothing good can happen in you know, a poor illiterate society because they don't have the preconditions for technology. Well, you know, it's much more productive to think of it going both ways. You know? uh, in Africa, there's been this tremendous boom. In, you know, there's still abysmal levels of education in Africa, but there's been this tremendous boom in cell phones remarkable growth in cell phones there's 100 million subscribers to cell phones in Africa now out of a population of 700 million and it's growing uh, by a factor of 10 every 3 years so it's going to it's going to keep growing enormously and you know cell phones are a great incentive to a great way to uh it themselves promote education you know it makes education themselves e- easier you want to it increases the payoff to education uh, so, the causality really goes both ways that you if you get a technological breakthrough uh, that will increase the payoff to skills because cell phones make possible all kinds of skilled occupations that were not possible when you did not have a functioning communication system, then you have more incentive for people to go out and get an education. you have more demand on the public sector to provide good schooling parents demand good schooling so again, I encourage you to not get stuck in the top-down preconditions mentality but think more of the the bottom-up emergence uh mentality as not you know it's not that one view is completely wrong and the other is completely right but think of both of them as complementary to the way development actually happens and um lastly on Park Chung-hee I just have to stick to my guns and I really think this kind of glorification of Park Chung-hee is is just it's sort of like the halo effect of you know Korea succeeded, so Park must have been a genius, and I'd, I don't think that follows. You know I mean uh, on average, you know uh, uh, repressive autocrats uh, on average they do usually do pretty bad things to economies. So if you want to sort of do empirical research on whether repressive autocrats are are good on on average for uh, for societies, I think the evidence is pretty strong they're bad. So I I would. Uh, think that Korea succeeded in spite of having a repressive autocrat or maybe... Something that's really untestable, having a repressive autocrat who is not quite so anti development as some of the other repressive autocrats uh, but uh, again, I think there's too way too much hero worship of these leaders it's it's, it's really gotten out of control i mean uh, next thing I expect to see are you know uh baseball cards of heroic policy reformers that we start that start trading on ebay you know it's it's just it's gotten out of control it's not reality um I just I, I...
2: A couple of quick remarks. I mean, um, one of the few pieces of empirical evidence in in growth that seems to 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 stand out is that actually, you know, uh, leaders matter. You know, b- b- both in terms of you know good and bad. Uh, but I agree with uh, you know. Having said that, you know, the policy prescription is not obvious. You know, I mean, how do you get good leaders? Is is not something that uh, uh, that's easily answered. Um, but that's not to say that you know the fact that Park Chung-hee did do lots of good things and you know uh, it it needs to be recognized so there's a kind of an an ex post-ex-ante tension here, which, which I, I think is fundamentally irresolvable. O- on manufacturing exports, I think it's a good point. The one thing I, I, I will say on that is, uh, although Bill showed us a, a chart which said, you know, the top export accounts for X and the top three for that, uh, I think one of the stylized facts about uh, development is that um, countries that have more diversified export and manufacturing bases actually have tended to grow faster. Now, again, the causation works both ways, but it certainly does raise the question of, you know, uh, are there things that, you know, governments can do to, to to ensure that uh, you know manufacturing exports uh, can be uh, the the environment to do manufacturing exports can be boosted uh, just to give you one example on that something on which Bill and I completely agree that I think it is the case that countries that have received more aid and my own research tends to show that countries that tend to receive more aid do fare worse in terms of being able to generate manufacturing exports so, so I, I mean I would translate that into a into a policy choice of you know don't get aid, uh, which is something that I'm sure Bill will agree with.
0: Thanks. I'm afraid that we have uh, run out of time now. And uh, one thing that I did learn from this discussion is that economists also seem to like to create puzzles where there are not. uh, We were wondering why China and India have grown so fast, even though they're not all that – free, and then we discovered in the discussion something that is actually confirmed by the empirical evidence that when you have a very poor, very repressed economy that moves in the direction of economic freedom, you can get high growth for a long time. No puzzle uh, there, at least in my mind. Uh, Maybe we should have a study, a psychological study of economists uh, around the world, but that's a subject for the next uh, policy forum. I do want to thank our our speakers today for joining us. Please help me in welcoming them. Thank you. Thank you.